Turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. Scripture reading this morning is going to be Luke chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. If you are using one of the Pew Bibles, uh, you will find Luke 23, 39 on page 884. This is Luke's account of the conversation that took place between Jesus and the two criminals who were crucified alongside him. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 39. This is the very word of God. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the reading of God's word. Let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of his word here this morning. Father God, we come before you this morning asking for your grace. As we come to this somewhat familiar story, Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see your Son and ears to hear the gospel concerning his finished work upon the cross. Father, grant to us that same faith and repentance that caused this dying thief to turn to Jesus for mercy, even as he hung upon the cross. Father God, may this grace be ours this morning. We ask boldly in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. Have you ever been in a, a situation when you suddenly realized the inappropriateness or maybe even ugliness of something that you had said previously. This usually happens to me when I hear my kids repeating things that they've heard me say. They say something about another driver on the road even before they themselves know what it is to drive. Or they say something about a referee at a game. Or they, they say someone about, uh, something about someone who is uh, defending a certain position. And of course, as I hear them, I, I realize that there's something grossly wrong with what they are saying. Only as I realize that they learn to say that from me. Well, it seems that the thief on the cross must have had something like that experience. Both, uh, all the Gospels tell us that, that Jesus was crucified alongside two criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And, and Matthew tells us that, that both of them, the, the robbers plural, were among those who reviled Jesus and, and mocked him as he suffered. But Luke tells us, here in, in these verses, that before they died, one of the robbers, one of the criminals, suddenly realized the ugliness of what he had previously been saying. He, he suddenly 
saw Jesus for who he was, he, he suddenly realized the truth. And he repented. And he turned to Jesus in faith, asking him for salvation. The salvation that Jesus promised he would receive. It's a familiar story. It is a profound story. And no doubt we could unpack it any number of ways this morning. But there are three basic things I want us to see in this story this morning. First, I want us to see something of the nature of unbelief. We'll see this, of course, in the first criminal. Then, I I want us to see the nature of, of true faith. We'll see this in the second criminal. And then finally, I want us to see the fullness of Christian hope. And we will see this in Jesus' promise. So let's begin with the nature of unbelief. As I said, we see this in the words of the first criminal recorded for us there in verse 39. We are told one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, that is, at Jesus, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and... Us. Now the criminal's desire to be saved is entirely understandable. He is, after all, hanging on a Roman cross. By all accounts, it was an excruciating and humiliating way to die. So much so that Rome would not allow one of its own citizens to be Crucified. It was a, a means of execution reserved for the most vile and offensive of foreigners. It's no surprise, therefore, that the criminal wants to be rescued. Do we not all want to be rescued when we find ourselves mired in the painful consequences of our sin? It, it comes naturally. The desire to be set free, the desire to be released from what is causing our pain. But we should learn from this criminal that the desire, that is, the desire to be saved from the consequences of our sin, that desire, even when it's a desire to be saved by Jesus from the consequences of our sin, that that desire in and of itself does not constitute true faith. It is a desire entirely consistent with unbelief. As I said, most people, if not all people, desire to be saved from the consequences of their sins. Why? Because the consequences of our sins are terrible. The the consequences of our sins are, are painful. Sin destroys health. Sometimes it destroys your your physical health, and you can see this easily. Decisions that you have made in the past, sinful decisions, now have have severe ramifications upon your physical body. Some of you are are dealing with those even today. Others of you know people who are. You, You see the physical consequences, but it's not just physical consequences. There are emotional consequences to our sins. It it destroys our emotional health. It destroys our relational health. It it destroys the relationships we have with with ones that we love. Relationships that that should be our community and our foundation. That should bring us security. And nevertheless, they are relationships broken by our sins. And of course, sin destroys our spiritual health. It cuts us off from our heavenly 
Father, it causes us to, to hide and to, to sew together fig leaves trying to cover our shame. The consequences of, of sin are, are terribly painful. Every facet of our lives is irreparably broken by our sins. That's what Paul describes in Romans chapter 6 when he asks rhetorically, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? He says clearly, the end of those things is death. That's why he famously says, for the wages of sin is death. Think about that image. The wage that sin pays. When sin is your master. When sin is whom you serve. The wage that you receive is death. And therefore we desire. We, we desire to be saved from the consequences of our sin. Almost without exception. And those who grew up in the West, those who, who grow up in countries and, and cultures largely shaped by Christianity, when they desire to be saved, they desire to be saved by God and even specifically by Jesus. And that's exactly what we see this first criminal doing. He's, he's crying out to Jesus, if you're really the Christ, save me. If you're really who you claim to be, save me. But what we see is that this in and of itself is not true faith. We, we, we know it's not the faith that receives salvation because of Jesus' non-response to his demand. And so if his calling out to Jesus for salvation is not true faith, what is the, the defect? What is, what is wrong with his request? I think we can see it fairly easily when we just look at how he addresses Jesus. He, he says to him, are you not the Christ? You can, you can hear the presumption. He's not really asking a question. This is, this is not an honest inquiry. Rather, it is a challenge. He is challenging Jesus to prove himself. He is, he is basically saying to Jesus that if you are truly who you say you are, if you are truly the chosen one of God, then this is what you must do for me. Is this not the way that unbelief so often talks? We hear it all the time, do we not? God, if you are truly God, save me. We think... That when God fails to save us, when He, when he saves to fails to deliver us from the consequences of our sins, it proves that He must not really be God. We say things like, I, I can't believe in a God who would let this or, or that happen. I can't believe in God because God wouldn't allow this or that to take place. If God were there, if He were truly God then he would save me out of this mess. But merely desiring God to save us from the consequences of our sins, even the eternal consequences, is not true faith. It's simply the expression, the, the natural expression of a sinful heart. That's the first thing that we must see this morning. It is not enough 
simply to desire to be delivered from the consequences and the, the brokenness and the mess of our sin. That's what the first criminal wanted. But if that's not true belief, if that's not true faith, what does true faith look like? It's what we see in the second criminal. As I said, this second criminal began the day just like the first criminal. At first, he too re reviled and mocked Jesus in unbelief. But through the mysterious working of God's sovereign grace, and that could be a whole other, another sermon, we're not going to go there this morning, but, but through, the, through the mysterious working of God's sovereign grace, his eyes were opened and he was granted repentance and faith. And in him, we begin to see the characteristics of that true faith. We, we see the first expression of it in the form of a rebuke. Look what he says to the first criminal. He, he says, do you not fear God? It's a, it's a rebuke. Do you not fear God? The second criminal recognizes that the first criminal's demand is, is utterly devoid of proper Fear. He, he stands before God presumptuously. He, he stands before God assuming that if God is God, he must use his power to deliver him out of all his troubles. He assumes or, or presumes that God is obligated to him. And this is, of course, the exact Reversal of the truth. Paul teaches us in his great doxology recorded in Romans chapter 11, the, the doxology that we have been singing together on Wednesday nights, he, he says that all things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. It's a profound statement. Think about what those phrases mean. To say that all things are from Him means that He is the Creator. We enter into worship each Lord's Day noting that the Maker of heaven and earth is our Helper. It is the Maker of heaven and earth who has come to our rescue. All things are from Him. If it exists, it exists because He made it. It exists because He spoke it into existence. In the universe, there is God and there is everything else. God is the maker of all things, visible and invisible. He is the creator. But not only did He speak these things into creation, He now sustains them in Him by the word of His power. They hold together. They are through Him. He continues to sustain moment by moment the universe which He has created. He causes it to operate according to His good and gracious will. All things are from Him and all things are through Him. And therefore, because He is the maker and the sustainer of all that is, all things are to Him. All things are for the sake of His glory. All things exist that they might bring praise to the glory of His name. When you begin to recognize this, when you begin to, to recognize that all things are from Him and, and through Him and, and to Him, you begin to see why sin justly leads 
to death. God alone has life in himself. If you have life, you have it because he gave it to you. Your life is a stewardship from the one who alone has life in himself. The one who alone has a a necessary existence. The rest of us are contingent. The rest of us are utterly dependent upon him. The rest of us are, are merely stewards of what he has given. And therefore, if you will not steward what he has entrusted to you, according to his purposes and for the sake of his glory then you forfeit your right to life. You forfeit your right to manage that which he has given you. If you rebel against him, if you do not live for him and unto him, then you are justly condemned to eternal death. This is merely recognizing that he is the creator and sustainer of the universe. And this is where the fear of the Lord begins. The fear of the Lord begins with the recognition that we are to Him. And that one day He will call us to account for all that He has entrusted to us, for the stewardship that He has given to us. The fear of the Lord recognizes that it is not God who is obligated to us, but rather it is we who are obligated to To him. In short, the fear of the Lord acknowledges that God is God and we are not. We are not God, but we are his creatures. And it is this recognition that he is God. It is is the giving up of the desire to be God ourselves. It is the the giving up of the, the presumption that God is somehow obligated to us. That is the proper fear of the Lord and as the beginning of true faith. But there's a second element that I, we need to see here. A second element of, of true faith. And we see it in the criminal's acknowledgement of his own guilt. So first, we, we have the fear of the Lord. That is the, the first element of true faith. The acknowledgement that we are from Him and through Him and, and to Him. That He is God and we are His creatures. But second... We have the acknowledgement of our own guilt. We have sinned. And therefore we have justly incurred His holy wrath. Notice what the criminal says in verse 41. Speaking to the first criminal, he says, We're under the same sentence, and we indeed justly. For we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. Think about that for a moment. The due reward. The the due reward. The reward that you are due. The reward that we are due as sinners is condemnation and death. It's a profound confession. In my experience, almost everyone today will admit that they are not perfect. I've encountered a few who, who, who thought that they had overcome sin. I've encountered a few who, who thought that they had attained a level of perfection. But they are the rare exception. Most people will happily admit that they are not perfect. After all, to err is human. But few, and really none apart from God's grace, will admit that they are justly condemned. 
That they are justly under a sentence of death. That they are, in fact, deserving of God's full wrath. I'm sure I've told the story before, but I I vividly remember the first lesson I ever taught during my internship uh, at Covenant Seminary. I was uh, given responsibility for the youth at a a, a local church. And as I entered on Wednesday night to teach the the middle schoolers, I thought I would start with some of the basics. And so we were talking about sin. And I asked them to raise my hand. Some 60 middle schoolers, I asked them to to raise their hands. And they said, well, how many of you have sinned? And of course, all their hands went up. And I said, how many of you have sinned so badly that you deserve to be damned to hell forever? And all but two or three hands went down. They're like, whoa. That doesn't sound like me. That's where we live. That's where we live. We we know we're not perfect. But do we truly understand the due reward of our sins? This man says, we indeed justly. And we all must come to that conclusion. We must acknowledge that we are fully deserving of God's holy wrath. The question is sometimes asked, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And the answer is, He doesn't. Because they don't. R.C. Sproul says, only once in human history has a bad thing happened to a good person. And that is when Jesus died upon the cross. The truth is that all people have suffered far less than their sins deserve. We have suffered less than our sins deserve. And don't don't let that go down too easily. That's a hard saying. Think about those whom you know who, who have suffered. Think about those whom you don't know but are aware of elsewhere in the world who have who have suffered. The suffering of, of many in this life is terrible. I have lived a, a relatively cush life. I, I have not suffered much. But I know people who have. And it is hard to say that their suffering is, is less than what they truly deserve. It's, it's hard for us as, as, sin, as, as human beings, as as sinful human beings to to really wrap our minds around that. We we don't fully appreciate the the measure of our sin and therefore we don't fully appreciate the, the measure of the punishment that we deserve. But if we take God at His word, we must recognize that all people experience God's grace in this world. All deserve some measure of undeserved Favor, even the most terrible sufferings are not unjust. They are simply a fuller expression of the wrath that we all deserve. A wrath that has not yet been fully poured out. And this is the second element of of true faith. a, A recognition that what we suffer, a recognition that the wrath that we deserve is the holy wrath of God. But of course, faith doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop by, by simply looking at ourselves. Next, faith turns its eyes to Jesus. And the third element of true faith that I, that I want us to see here is the recognition of Jesus' innocence. 
Again, notice what the criminal says. He says, you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Somehow the, the dying thief recognizes that Jesus is innocent. He recognizes that, that Jesus has been unjustly Condemned. Maybe he heard Pilate say it repeatedly. We remember what we saw just a few weeks ago, that, that Pilate again and again acknowledges Jesus' innocence. He says, after examining him before you, I did not find him guilty of any of your charges, and neither did Herod. And he says it again a little later. What evil has this man done? I have found him in, in him no guilt deserving of death. Maybe the, the criminal who was crucified alongside Jesus was, was there for the trial. We don't know. Maybe he had previously seen some parts of Jesus' ministry and, and the Holy Spirit began to open his eyes to what he had witnessed. The fact is, we, we simply don't know. We don't know what this man knew. We don't know how this man knew. But we do know that somehow, by God's grace, his eyes are open to see Jesus as the innocent one. Now, whether that means he recognized him to be perfectly sinless, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not, I'm not sure of the, the full extent of his theological knowledge. But clearly he knows that Jesus is not dying for his own sins. He knows that he does not deserve the punishment that he is receiving. And this is important because it allows him to see that his death is vicarious. His death is for and on behalf of another. And this is the third essential characteristic of true faith. The gospel is not simply good advice about how you can live, about what you can do to reconcile yourself to God. If it was simply good advice, it would not be all that great, for we couldn't follow the advice. We, we couldn't do what was required. But the gospel is not good advice, but, but good News. It is news. It is a report of what God Himself has done in and through His Son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile helpless sinners to Himself. The Gospel is fundamentally news. It is a report of something that has happened. A, a report of a victory that has been won. A victory won when the innocent one died upon the cross, condemned as a guilty sinner. So what have we seen? We, we've seen that true faith believes God is God. We've seen that, that true faith believes that we have sinned against this true God and are justly deserving of His holy wrath. And we have seen that true faith believes, even as Peter writes in his first letter, that Christ suffered once for sins, not for His own sins, but for the sins of another. Christ suffered once for sins, the innocent for the guilty, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. This then brings us to the fourth element of true faith that we see in this passage. True faith trusts Jesus for salvation. True faith doesn't just believe that Jesus died for sinners. True faith trusts Jesus personally for salvation from my sins. We see this in the dying thief's petition. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
Again, it's impossible to know for certain how much he understands of what he is saying. We, we just don't know how, how fully he understands his own words. But in a way, that's sort of comforting, isn't it? Some of you are, are sort of, you have a knack for theology. And in the PCA, we tend to be proud of our theology. Others of you struggle with, with our theology. And, and you, you wonder if you'll ever really ever get your mind around it all. Well, how comforting it is to know that we are not saved by our theological acumen. We are not saved by our, by our skills. Yes, we, we delight in our theology. We thank God for the men who have gone before us and have labored hard to work out the truths of, of Scripture in ways that we can understand. But we are not saved by our understanding. We are saved by Jesus. And the dying thief looked to Jesus for his salvation. The dying thief asked Jesus to remember him. When he came into his kingdom. And no matter how much we understand, we must all look to Jesus with the same faith. And so let me ask you, what is your hope this morning? Is it that you are truly reformed? That you, you have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed? Or is your faith and the one who died for you upon the cross. You fear God. And you know yourself. You know that you have no hope of standing before Him upon your own record and your own merit. As a sinner, you are justly condemned. Justly under a sentence of death. Justly an object of God's holy wrath. But the righteous one has died for the unrighteous. The innocent one has, has died for the guilty. And if you entrust yourself to him, he will remember you. And he will bring you to God. We, we see this clearly in Jesus' reply to the criminal's request. Let's look at it just briefly. Jesus says to the dying thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the Christian's hope. And the first thing I want you just to notice is, is the certainty of Jesus' promise. He, he says, truly I say to you. This is absolutely certain. This is unassailable truth. Truly I say to you. Jesus is, is giving the thief an absolute assurance of salvation. Why? How? Certainly not because he has seen his track record. But notice, he also doesn't have to wait to see what works will follow. He, he doesn't have to wait to see if the thief will bring, bring forth sufficient fruit. Yes, hear me say that, that obedience is the necessary fruit of faith. The one who believes will walk in obedience. But you need to understand that our salvation rests not upon the, the, the works that flow out of our faith and our union with Christ, but rather our salvation rests wholly and completely and solely upon the work of Jesus Christ finished upon the cross. Therefore, when we believe in Him and are united to Him by faith, our salvation is guaranteed. 
We indeed are justified by faith alone. And that's what makes the timing of Jesus' promise possible. Notice what he says. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. This again is a, is a significant truth. Paul tells us elsewhere that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And not to put too fine a point on it, but that simply means there is no such thing as purgatory. I know not, not many of you have a Roman Catholic background, but you are, um, I am sure, familiar with this doctrine, this, this idea of purgatory, this, this idea that when the Christian dies, if they are not sufficiently fit for heaven in this life, then they must go to a place called purgatory, where the, the, the purifying can continue until they are sufficiently fit for life in the age to come. Scripture teaches no such thing. That doctrine is the result of the Roman denial of the previous truth. The, the Roman church denies the idea of faith alone. The, the Roman church denies that the faith that unites you to Christ is enough. It, it says that not only must you be united to Christ, but then you must bring forth works as the ground of your final salvation. And, and the, the logical outcome of that teaching is that most of us don't have enough good works when we die, and so therefore we need a place to go in the meantime so that we can be purified enough to go to heaven long after we die. That simply is not the teaching of Scripture. When you have the doctrine of faith alone, when you hear Jesus say, your faith is enough, then you know that the today can be true. Today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Why? Because to be absent from the body for the believer is to be present with the Lord because his access was not purchased by his works, but by the works of another, the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus can say to the thief, today you will be with me, where? In paradise. Again, we could have a whole sermon just on that word, but, but think about what it means. In the beginning, God created all things good. There was Eden. Eden was a paradise. Eden was a place where all things were as they were supposed to be. And we know that the day is coming when, when God will restore the original goodness of creation. In fact, even bring it to a fuller completion. When things will again be paradise. But that day is not yet. Just look around. We still live in a, in a present evil age. We live in an age marked by futility. How can Jesus say that today you will be with me in paradise? What Jesus is saying is that when the thief dies, he will in fact go to be with God in heaven, where God's will is done as it is to be done, where, where things are in accord with his word. But we need to understand that that is not the end of the story. One day, God's heavenly kingdom will once again be established on earth. One day, even as we pray in the Lord's Prayer, His will will be done here as it is done there. And all those who are in Christ by faith will be resurrected bodily to live life in that new coming paradise, in the coming kingdom of God. But in the meantime, as we wait for that day, you will not be in limbo you will not be in purgatory. You will not be in some suspended state, but you will be in what is elsewhere called the bosom of Abraham. You will, you will be with your Lord in 
heaven. You will be with your Lord in paradise waiting for that day when the good work will be finally brought to completion. To be absent from the body is indeed to be present with the Lord. This is the hope of the gospel. This, this is the hope that the gospel holds out to all who believe. This is the hope that belongs to all who, who have a proper fear of the Lord, knowing that He and He alone is God. This is the hope that belongs to all who know themselves to be sinners justly condemned under a sentence of His holy wrath. This is the hope that belongs to all who know that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who died in their place to take away their sins. This is the hope that belongs to all who trust in Him for their own personal salvation. If that is your faith, when you die, you will be with the Lord in paradise. And one day, you will receive an inheritance in His coming kingdom where you will live forever perfectly, enjoying and glorifying Him for all eternity. And because this is the hope of the gospel, a hope that is sure and certain, sealed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ Himself, because this is our hope. That's why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we come before you now asking that you would grant to us eyes to see, ears to hear, a heart to believe and to receive the, the wonder of this gospel. Father, we do not know how you worked in the heart of this dying thief, a man who, who started the day reviling and mocking Jesus, but by the end was looking to Him in faith, asking to be remembered. Father God, we pray that You would do that same work in our hearts. Do it afresh today for all us who believe. And if there are any here, Father, who do not yet know You, would You grant to them this faith, this repentance unto life, that they may not perish in their sins, but that they may look forward with a sure and certain hope to paradise. Father, this we pray boldly in the name of Your Son, and for His name's sake. Amen.